0: Smith, And this is more than one lesson. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying to think if there's any before we get into it, because we got a lot of stuff to talk about trying to think if there's any announcements. I felt I I instinctively wanted to thank my guest last week, but it was just Josh. Um, But uh, but I guess what I can do is I can thank the 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 people at Variety for uh, allowing Josh the press credentials and the access to the uh, the faith based and family summit. Um it was uh a, a very intre- it's a very interesting idea and I'm excited that they hopefully will ke- uh, keep doing it in the future. Um so I think we will go ahead and uh for this next announcement, we're gonna welcome in our co host, Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, you know, standard answer. I'm doing well. I'm happy sure. to be here. <laughs> yeah. Uh now I should say that you know our energy might be a little low because Reed and I decided to start early uh, so that we could finish uh, early. But instead, we decided to talk for two hours about <laughs> politics because that's oh, who we are. Absolutely. And, uh, and I want to try and go see. A, I want to try and go see a screening of Suicide Squad later, which sounds and, like a natural progression after politics. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I need something. I was going to say I need something dumb and senseless. Then I realized. Oh wait. <laughs> That's what politics is at the moment. Um, it's true. So, uh, okay, Reed. I talked about this last week. Mm. There's gonna be a, there's gonna be a new podcast in the more than one lesson family. There is uh, now. I will say that. Uh, uh, so over battleship retention, we have the battleship retention podcasting fleet. Mm. You know, uh, we're really staying on brand over there. Now, more than one lesson. I'm not sure exactly what to say. I had an idea, but. I don't think I'm going to go with it because after a certain point, even I get tired of branding. Oh, so we've okay. got this chalkboard thing right you know right. that it's, if you look at more than one lesson.com there's chalkboard stuff all over the place. It's our color scheme. It's our uh, font. Um, and so I thought, you know, because your new podcast is going to be one show over the next few months, we are probably going to add a couple more. Um, which I'll talk about when the time comes. And so I was thinking like, oh, the the More Than One Lesson podcasting faculty. Uh, that's what I was thinking. And then I thought you're being ridiculous (laughs) just stop doing that
1: i don't know I'm actually kind of fond of faculty like when you were before you mentioned it again i i thought like i could live with faculty i I kind of like it it's 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 got a certain sort of uh quality to it that i feel like i could own uh very proudly
0: so i don't know your call though i could just call it the the more than one lesson teaching staff okay and that's you know but then you have to act like you're a teacher or something Uh, wear tweed jackets and smoke a pipe i assume that's what teachers are like right yes that's 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 all they ever do um but uh but yeah so we'll we'll uh once we have other podcasts in this uh i'll say family for the moment uh then i'll know what to call it i might just (laughs) call it hey here's a bunch of shows um so you're going to be on august 23rd yes you your new show is starting up It is called The Fear of God. People will be able to find it in iTunes, and they will be able to find it uh, right here at morethanonelesson.com. So... Read what is this thing? What is the fear of God? You tell me. <laughs> that's a,
1: well, uh, so the answer to the broad, uh, what is the fear of God is a question that we've been debating, you know, for centuries now. Beginning of all wisdom, that's that, what I know. It is, but as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation. Oh, look at you. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, what we talk about, very specifically, it's myself and uh, my old college friend, uh, Nathan Rouse. We have a weekly conversation Mostly about movies. It's primarily going to be about movies. Occasionally we will venture into other subjects, be they uh, literature or music or uh, possibly uh, broader sweeping tropes of the genre, but it's all centered around the horror genre. So it's going to be a blending of the intersection between the Christian faith and... And the horror genre. Mm -hmm. And that's what every conversation revolves around. Uh, Each week, we're going to be talking about, you know, one specific thing, and we'll talk about it as fans of it Mm -hmm. first. And then what watching it or listening to it or reading it made us think about as people and as Christians and just go from there. It's
0: Halloween times all year round. Over all year the fear round. of God, exactly. But listeners, don't you worry. At MoreThanOneLesson.com, we will still have Halloween times. Reed will still be a part of it. We have or, we've uh, coordinated so that there's no overlap. That's true. Uh, so that we're not repeating ourselves. Uh, yes, this is very exciting, and I'll I'll tell this story. Um, you know. So I've been in the podcasting game long enough that uh, anytime a friend or an acquaintance wants to start a show, they won't ask me for advice or anything like that. They'll simply say, hey, you'll find this interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. And I think, oh, that's great. Good for you. Um, that's what I say. Here's what I think. I think we don't need it more. And I say that as somebody who, you know, started up a Survivor a survivor podcast with his wife knowing full well, there were plenty already. Like mm. they did not need another one. That one was just for me. Um, and it's arguable whether people need battleship retention. Uh, I think more than one lesson has a, is a necessary show, but even then there's a lot of other shows like that. And so my first thought is anytime somebody says, oh, I want to start a podcast, you know, it's just, okay, well, what, are, it, there are 600,000 of them, maybe even more now. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, what are you going to bring to it? And then when Reed told me the concept for his show, I was so excited because I hadn't heard of any others like this. Yeah, and as far yeah. as you and I can tell, there are no other there shows aren't like any. this. Yeah. Not there. that we can
1: find. Yeah. I mean, there are singular episodes of other shows where somebody's maybe dived into it. Right. No
0: other podcast that I could find that's devoted specifically to this subject. Yeah. A Christian Take on Horror. That yeah. is not simply don't watch horror, which I got to say, as a whole podcast, I've, I could see that sputtering out pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's only so, I, I feel like maybe you get two years out of that. Um,
1: <laughs> two years. Well, <wow>. yeah, see, <laughs>
0: two years of you should not be watching this. Why did you watch this movie? Oh, boy. Why well, did we watch this? Movie? Their entire Christian website's based on that idea. It's um, a good point. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So that's going to be August 23rd. Yes. Uh, which is a Tuesday. So there's going to be a new episode every Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, you'll be able to find it on iTunes, but you can also find it more than one lesson.com. Yep. So this is very exciting. Uh, and once it starts, we will uh, promote it as much as we can because we want people to to listen to it. We want this to be a successful show. For a number of reasons, not the least of which is I think it's an important conversation, hmm. like even to the you know to this day, there are still Christians that say that horror is demonic and right, that is right. that it is irredeemable hmm. um and that is definitely with Halloween times and now with the fear of God, that is a thing that we are committed to not uh, uh, not merely not agreeing with but shooting down as much as we can, absolutely, you yeah. know. And I would say that our friend uh, Bill Oberst Jr., who is right in the thick of it, oh uh, yes, he would. You know, very few people speak as eloquently and as passionately as he does about true. how diving in, diving full on into horror has uh, only strengthened, uh, strengthened his face. Yeah, thick, no, absolutely, appear. yeah. So, okay, uh, so yeah, very excited about that. But we've got our own horrific things to talk about today. Oh, my. No better movie to talk about in the midst of uh, the summer vacation <laughs> than uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. Now, that might be Dennis, uh, but it sounds very French, so I'm going to say Denis. I think you're um, right. So, this film came out in 2013. hmm I did not see it, I think, for a solid two years. Not because I was avoiding it. It looked. It very much looked like my kind of movie. But it just, I didn't get around to it. And so that's two full years of a lot of people, listeners, friends, saying, you need to talk about prisoners <laughs> on more than one lesson. Yeah. Um, and once I saw it, I realized, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, there's just too much stuff in there to not talk about it on this show. I was surprised at how um, much there is. To the, to the extent that, actually, I feel like... To try to cover all of the spiritual themes in the film is to actually cast, in my opinion, too wide a net and be and maybe not cover any one of them well enough. And so, you know, one of the big things we're going to be talking about is, you know, the role of revenge and more specifically um, how frustrating it can be to feel like you lack control in this Mm -hmm. life. Um, You know, things happen and as christians uh you know things happen that we don't like, things happen that break our hearts, and we and we realize suddenly, oh, I don't actually have nearly as much control over my life as I did, right and so there's a certain degree of rebellion uh there can be a certain rebellion against God who does have control, and so why didn't he do what we wanted him to do right. but that's for that's for later uh but that's that is uh, the film delves into a lot of things. The reason I felt the need to clarify at the top is that that's what we're going to be talking about. We could probably do an entire other, uh, an entire second episode about prisoners covering other themes, uh, other spiritual themes, but this is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, So yeah, I, so that was my expectation going in. I went into it knowing that I would, that I was going to, having been set up by listeners and friends, that I'm going to see something in here that is interesting spiritually. Mm. Um, and sure enough, it did not uh, disappoint. Uh, you, now, you saw Prisoners for the first time yesterday. Yesterday, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I will say, of the three co-hosts, you are the one I wanted to talk to. About this movie, interesting. Uh, no offense to Josh and Robert, I have no, I have no question that they would uh, have interesting things to say. But there is a certain, there's definitely a horror element, yes. uh, definitely horror imagery to the film, mm-hmm. and I think there's also a certain. It's not a southern film, but there's a certain gothic quality to it oh, uh, tonally mm-hmm. um, that I felt that you are somehow uniquely qualified to talk about. Um, So I'm excited that you're here. Uh, You don't have to give like a lot of detail about your response or anything like that. But, you know, what uh, what was your expectation going in and and what was your general response to the film when you watched it yesterday?
1: So my general expectation was pretty open open slated uh clean slated is a better word that um i knew that it was highly praised and i knew that it was dark Mm -hmm. but that was about as much as i knew i didn't know anything about the plot i didn't know anything about where it goes the only thing that i kind of had an inkling of either from having heard somebody say something about it or whatever, but i had an inkling of okay something a, a tragedy hits hugh jackman's character and he does some regrettable things yes that's about as much as I knew going into it, like, okay, you know, I think, you know, this is going to be kind of dealing with some heaviness and he does some regrettable things coming in. So, so I was watching it. And of course, when the, you know, when the inciting incident happens and I know like, oh, okay, so this is, this is where it's going. Um, And then they introduced Jake Gyllenhaal as the, as the police officer who's going to be investigating this, you know, this disappearance. Um, From there, I wasn't quite sure what I was, you know, where things were going to go. But with each notch that it went to, I was fascinated by the fact that from the opening frames of the movie, Hugh Jackman is established as a religious character. Yep. He's somebody who, uh, the opening lines of the film are the, are the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. And uh, he's somebody who, it was interesting to me that the opening shot of the film combined both the Lord's Prayer and an act of violence. Now, granted, it's, it would not
0: be the last
1: one, uh, the last
0: moment. <laughs> exactly, it doesn't move into a courtroom drama after that. <laughs>
1: it's true, <laughs> um, but I I did find that really fascinating that uh, that here is a man who is obviously, you know, comfortable in his faith, uh, but then also comfortable with uh, with that degree of sort of. Um, uh, I've started to use the word barbarism, but you know, if you know that the opening scene is is a hunting scene, I don't want to you know, just blanketly category, all hunting all right. is barbarism. That's, that's not a road I want to go down right now. But, um, so as the film progressed and I see the emotional core of his character begin to unravel mm-hmm. and dissolve. And I, I, begin to see the, as you described it, I think there's a, there's a component of nearly all religious thought. That is exactly what you touched on, that it is in some ways a means to maintain control mm-hmm. Of, our, of ourselves, if of nothing else. And I think that was the part that I found the most fascinating about it is that he loses control of the external situation very quickly in the film. Yes. But what I found most interesting is how progressively he lost control of the internal situation and how he begins to dissolve as, as a person mm-hmm. who would not espouse the values Uh, That he is exhibiting, but the external circumstances have overrode his capacity to know what is right and wrong, even more so than the people that he tries to bring in as co-conspirators to him, Um, that it has to a large degree um, just completely consumed his thought processes. And I think that's something that is inherently possible for – I'll go ahead and say every every deeply religious thinker, that it is inherently possible – if you don't have a healthy perspective on your own fallibility, and if you don't have a healthy perspective on your own inability to to constantly manage the circumstances in your life, um, you're going to become very, very frustrated. And it's going to happen very quickly that you'll begin to sort of just basically engage in things that you find abhorrent, yeah. that if it were happening to somebody else, you would – dramatically advise them against it and counsel them against it, but because it's happening to you, you can kind of self-justify and you can kind of find a way to, to, I don't know, just to sort of make yourself feel empowered and necessarily called to do what you're having to do
0: well that's that's you know that's so much of uh we've talked about this on the show in the past the idea of making idols of things and when you make an idol and no you're wrong you can make an idol out of religion sure which is notably different than god um so anytime you make an idol out of something especially if it's something that society says it's perfectly okay to make an idol out of like right. family mm-hmm. um and then that thing is is goes away, or in this case, is taken away from you. Anything else that you might believe, anything else that isn't a function of that idol, can be pushed to the side, including, uh, you know, moral restraint. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you feel justified, you feel righteous, uh, in go, in trying to go after that idol, you know, right. and you feel empowered, and now. Imagine that you're a a spiritual person, you're a Christian, um, but that Jesus and trying to be like Jesus is not the priority. Mm-hmm. The priority is, you know, family, respect in the community, whatever you want to say, and then that is taken from you. You're not going to. That's a, what's interesting is you you won't abandon your Christianity. Instead, you will use it to subsidize your mm. your desire for revenge and your desire yeah. for any of these other things. Um, and that's very much what happens to Hugh Jackman's character. Yeah. Um. And I. And it's weird. We're it's 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 tough because I feel like we've jumped into the theme, but that's what the film is. Like the film is just yeah from the word go, as mm-hmm. you said. Yeah. I mean, this is what. You know, we, you can't talk about Hugh Jackman's character without talking about his faith.
1: Yeah, and see that's the thing is I and and you know even as you say that and maybe no apology is needed, but I apologize because like that it, I I didn't spend any time talking about how I think the performances are uh, universally excellent. I don't think there's a weak performance in this film. Yeah, um, and I'm seeing some different work from like uh, from uh, Terrence Howard than. I'm used to seeing he's normally a very sort of brash and uh, an overtly tough guy kind of persona, but he's playing a very... I wouldn't, I'm reluctant to call him a broken character, but he's playing a uh, a much more vulnerable character than I'm used to seeing him play. Um, Same thing actually for uh, Viola Davis, who I also see as, I mean, she's played emotional roles, but I usually see her as a very strong personality. She's very vulnerable.
0: Like later on, I'm gonna see her in a movie where she's playing a very strong character. Oh yes, you're gonna be going to see her in that wonderful example of- uh, (laughs) I have to assume uh, the level of uh, thematic (laughs) engagement will be the same in Suicide Squad (laughs) as it is in Prisoners, right? Certainly,
1: certainly it must be. Um, but you know what's interesting? I didn't realize that uh, the same director of this also directed uh, Enemy, Yep. Uh, which which I saw. I think I liked it more than you did, but I yeah, found it very likely, yes. Yeah, I, 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 I found it very interesting, um, but I think as a director, he's got such an assured hand. This is a long movie, and it feels very heavy, but I, I felt very propelled through the whole plot. I don't think I was ever bored. More than an hour had gone by before I realized exactly how deep I was into this film. And um, I feel like it's just on purely technical levels. I feel like it's an exceptionally well-made movie. It's exceptionally well-acted. It's very well-scripted. It kind of walks right up to the edge of On the Nose with some of its script. Yeah. But I didn't ever feel like it was ham or or too heavy-handed. I felt like when you're dealing with a subject like this, you need to just go ahead and embrace this subject and explore it for everything that you want to explore it for. And I I would commend the filmmaker and the screenwriter for for doing just that.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much uh, to unpack with this film artistically, you know. And I think you sa- you picked, in my opinion, the absolute right word. You were propelled, yeah, because. There are two, I'd say there are two leads or at least two driving forces in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Hugh Jackman's character and there's Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Right. Both of whom are propulsive. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're with these guys, you're going to move forward. The movie could be three and a half hours. Right. And you're going to be there with them because first off, they're remarkably watchable, but also the film taps into their emotions so well that you're right there with them. And so as long as they're moving forward, you're going to move forward as well. Um, and you mentioned the, uh, the, on the nose, the, the potentially on the nose script. I think it is on the nose uh, regularly, but, uh, I went to a screening today of a movie called Imperium. Hmm. Uh, starring Daniel Radcliffe as oh, a, yeah. an FBI agent who goes undercover uh, with a right su- white supremacist. Group. Oh, I have heard about that. I had forgotten it was called that, but yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, the mo- the script is, at times, painfully on the nose. I mean, it is... Especially in the first 10 minutes, I thought, this is, w- is going to be work, this movie. Uh-oh. But... The film is... Not merely saved from being terrible, but is actually propelled into being good by the strength of the performances. Wow. A lot of what Hugh Jackman's character says is fairly on the nose but as a function i think of his performance he crafts a character that is on the nose yeah. which is mm-hmm. to say this is not a character of nuance this is not a character who is going to say who's going to have small reactions to things right and if you get the right actor in there who understands what is driving this man Then, you know, if you had a character who's on, if you had an actor who underplays him, and don't be wrong, Hugh Jackman does at times, but if you have him just always, that he's just seething, but it's always under the surface, then I feel like the on the nose stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. But if you get the right actor saying it, no problem. Right. You know, Patty Chayefsky is one of the most on the nose writers uh, you've ever seen. Right. Right. You get George C. Scott playing his his uh, you know saying his dialogue in the hospital, oh my God. or you get Faye Dunaway or Robert Duvall mm. uh, in uh, Network, and suddenly the on the nose aspect of it is seen as something of a of a of an asset, right? Um, right, and it speaks volumes about who these characters are. And so this is not a subtle film really in a lot of ways. It is, you know, I said, it's Gothic. I think another word you could use is operatic, uh, in, mm -hmm. in the tone. Um, one of the big things I had heard about it, artistically was that you know the performances are all really good and i had heard that it was beautiful and yeah. it's roger deakins nominated for best cinematography it is wonderfully shot it, it is it is a gorgeous it's gorgeous in its in many cases in its ugliness mm-hmm. um but uh, and this is and this is the same director who made sicario
1: which oh. was also shot
0: by Roger Deakins. I still haven't seen Sicario. It's I need very, to very good. Yeah. Uh, maybe even great. I think I, I definitely prefer, th- I think I prefer Sicario to this. Hmm. Um, and eh, it's tough though. So, uh, Sicario, there's a, sh- there's a, a shift in the script, uh, hmm. about three quarters of the way in that is still interesting, but feels misguided. Oh, and it winds up just, okay. kind of undercutting the, m- the, the main character, but, um, okay. Whereas Prisoners, as, you know, I'll, I'll throw in another word. We've got gothic. We've got op- operatic. I'll also throw in pulpy. Hmm. There's there's a certain pulpy quality to it. Um, you know, it's worth noting that the the companion film is Mystic River, written by Dennis Lehane, who wrote, like, pulp crime novels. Right. Not right. pulp in the sense of, like, you know, the old-time pulp, but just, you know, he, he wrote books that, definitely had a depth to them but you would still definitely buy at the airport
1: yeah you're right it's like he elevates that genre to a degree because it's exactly in that niche but his his quality and some of the complexity of like one or two of his characters would elevate the
0: material yeah and so prisoners feel it's an original screenplay but can't you imagine it being a book that you bought at the airport, absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah, that was elevated through wonderful performances and and uh, amazing cinematography and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, um, and it sounds like I'm like I'm insulting prisoners. I'm trying to address because I know people that don't really like it that much, and I can see where you're coming from. It is not. You one could make the argument that's that it's a little bit pretentious. That it thinks it is deeper than it actually is. I think there's <laughs> a lot going on. But there is still that pulpy element to it, yeah, you know, one could say that it's two and a half hour running time when it probably could have been a solid two to two ten um, mm. implies a certain self-indulgence that, hey, we're dealing with big stuff right here. And it's like, N- yes, you are, but you know, you're only a few minutes you're you're a half hour short of Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> you're closer to Lawrence of Arabia than any other film uh, time wise within the genre that you're working. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm still fine with all that, but, uh, but I, I did want to address people's criticism of, of the film. Yeah. Um, and I do really feel like, I don't mean to say that the actors redeem the material. The material is already very solid and a lot of the directorial decisions and the, and the, the visual decisions are still amazing, but I do think the actors really do elevate it and make it something So engaging. I mean, this is a film that for a while was being bandied about like in, in Oscar discussions, Mm. you know, um, I believe, I believe you were part of our fantasy Oscar draft the year that that this was, uh, that this was in the running Mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody picked it for anything, but there, but as we as we were all doing our research, Mm Jake Gyllenhaal's name popped up a lot for supporting actor. Hugh Jackman's name popped up for actor, Uh, Roger Deakins, and then like original uh, screenplay. And that's where it got thrown out a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now it only wound up being nominated for cinematography, but it is just, uh, it's one of those movies that if it had gotten a lot of Oscar consideration as the companion film did, um, I don't think I would have had a problem with it, especially if it was from an acting standpoint. Yeah,
1: I agree. I, I think there's going to come a his, his, the exact statement that I wanted to make that maybe eventually there will come a day where I stop being impressed at Hugh Jackman because consistently when I come in, I just, I just forget what a
0: capable actor he is. He is in my opinion, one of the, maybe the most underrated actor working in Hollywood. And
1: I can't understand it because I, I completely agree with you yet. Every single time I see him cast in a movie, when I walk out of the movie or like several times through the movie, I'm like, man, he is doing such a good job. And I say it almost every single time and
0: yet I'm consistent. Like I, it doesn't carry over. He's not somebody that I think of when I rattle off lists of great actors. I think if, honestly, I think if he had left Wolverine behind like 10 years ago, mm. and then but then continued to be in this and The Prestige and Les Miserables, Maybe and these other, right. if, if he had done that, I think people would consider him more of a major actor but not unlike tom cruise playing ethan hunt for 20 years <laughs> right uh, and just continuing to go back to that character now admittedly tom cruise has also just just embraced action all around right but and while tom cruise is definitely a movie star i think people don't take him that seriously as an actor meanwhile i, I think you. in the running for most underrated actor in hollywood tom cruise is up there for me i agree he's remarkably dependable but to go back to Hugh Jackman, he was my favorite part of the Prestige. Everyone was talking about, you know, Christian Bale and his intense, you know, what is revealed to be a dual role. But to me, what Hugh Jackman is doing is so amazing. Completely agree. Not to mention, he's also he also does great work as Wolverine. Mm-hmm. But I always like. Hugh Jackman in anything that I see him in. He is a remarkably dependable actor. And based on every interview I've seen, he's maybe like the best guy in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I know he's so amiable anytime that he's talking. And and did you see that clip where he is walking the red carpet and there's a guy, a young guy who's interviewing him guys name is the interviewer's name is Rallo. Hmm. And there comes this moment where he's asking him a question and Hugh Jackman stops. You see a flash of recognition and he says, Rollo, you and I go way back. He goes, I remember you. I used to teach you in physical education when I was a teacher back in London. And Rollo and Rollo's like, Yeah, yeah. He oh goes, he my goes, goodness. And he's like, he goes. He goes. This is amazing. And he goes, How are you doing? And so they have like a real conversation, and they they both remember. Oh right, uh, we're supposed we're to be the right yeah. um, oh, But then there gosh. comes then there comes a moment um, towards the end of the interview. Where, because it was for a Wolverine movie, and, and then Rollo asks, like, he goes, you know, the Wolverine is a, is a very angry character, and he has his berserker rages, you know, what makes you angry? He goes, you know what makes me angry, w- Rollo? Students that don't listen. Students that are never prepared for class. He's like, yeah, that's what makes me angry. He goes, and you know what? I'm starting to remember you more and more. And he's just like, and it's just like such a, it's such a genuine, wow. wonderful moment. Mm-hmm. I, I've watched that clip more than I should, because I think Hugh Jackman's the most charming guy in the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's, I mean, he's really wonderful. And I, and yeah, it's honestly a little bit of a, I almost want to do a little bit of a mea culpa here because like, I really, uh, I, I just, I think I like him a lot more than I acknowledge or that I admit to myself and to anybody else that I just, I think he's terribly charismatic. I think he's terribly talented and, and yeah, I agree with you. I think he's, he's almost criminally underrated.
0: And I, and I think that's me as well. He is not for me a draw but I love him in everything. Yeah. Can't say so why a bad is he, why is he not a draw for me? I don't know. Yeah. You know, there are cer- there are certain actors that I mean obviously it depends uh, for the most part uh, but there are certain actors like well I'm going to see that eventually. I might not see it in the theater, but I'll see that eventually, you right. know. If there's a Robert right. Duvall movie where he is has any kind of uh any kind of role. Right. Um, it's like, well, okay, I'm definitely going to be seeing that soon. <laughs> um, and actually, Tom Cruise is kind of that for me. Uh, he's, yeah. He actually is a draw. But Hugh Jackman for me is not that yet. And I'm wrong. Mm, yeah. I'm, it, it, it's on me. It's not on him. He's, yeah. a, and, and think of what we were just talking about. We were talking about an amial, uh, amiable, uh, uh, sociable, friendly yeah. guy, upbeat, good-natured. Yeah. Can I, can I say one more? this part in prisoner? Oh, that's a, yeah. That's we'll get crazy to, that. to me. Yeah. We'll get to that in a moment. You had
1: something to say. Well, I was just going to mention, and maybe I shouldn't, but, uh, I have one little story to tell about Tom Cruise. My, my, uh, my wife, Briefly met Tom Cruise, and I know that Tom Cruise gets a lot of flack for kind of the the crazy sort yeah. of philosophy and everything. But um, her experience with him, which she would obviously tell much better than I do, um, she asked uh, if she could take a picture with him, and he was so immediately like, "Yeah," and yeah. and just you know invited her over, took a picture, blah blah blah. And uh, and then when she took the picture, he said, "Can you check it really quick to make sure you like it?" You know, uh, and then you know, so she did, and she's like, "No, no, 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 it's it's yeah. fine," you know. And but uh, you know, just a lot of love, f- you know, no. for Tom cruise and i think maybe there's something uh, i'm gonna put hugh jackman in the category i'm gonna put tom cruise in the category and i cannot believe that i'm about to say this please don't kick me off the show and I, from the stories that i hear about one mr keanu reeves is that he is just the epitome of the sweetest person
0: that yeah. you could ever possibly well he meet. would need to be <laughs> uh for, yeah that's when a good it comes point. to here's the thing when it comes to underrated actor i will not put keanu reeves in there nor will when I. it comes to uh underrated Hollywood presence sure I've heard wonderful things about him and I will say actually that he was in the movie The Neon Demon and he's quite good in it Um, really yeah interesting i haven't a neon demon is on my radar for obvious reasons but uh
1: but yeah that, i didn't even know he was in it that's yeah. interesting
0: it's a it's a smaller role but it's a it's a notable one well one thing that it m- might be uh, I, one thing that i've said about keanu reeves and we're talking
1: about tom cruise hugh jackman and I'm, I'm sure we'll direct us back to prisoners but one thing that i think keanu reeves does i think exceptionally well and this is a quality that might be a bit underrated keanu reeves looks so great on film. And I'm not just talking about like Mm -hmm. his general appearance. Like he is exceptional at, oh man, this is going to sound like an underhanded compliment, but he's exceptional at posing. Like there's so many ways that he can like, I think about things like the matrix. And I think about like, those are not natural ways that your body would land in that position, but it makes a great shot. Yeah. And those are not natural ways that your body would move but it makes a really interesting-looking shot. And he does that really well. I saw John Wick, and I thought the same thing, where I was like, man, he, j- he just really handles his body almost like a dancer and, and does really well hmm. with that. So he's does not great on line delivery, not great on you know maybe interpretation yeah. of character, but in terms of just what he can do with the image, there's, there, there's probably something to that. Bringing that back to Hugh Jackman and maybe even leading us back into Prisoners is I think that we have this certain... Uh, opinions about what does and does not define good acting. And when mm. we see like a star or when we see somebody uh, who's made, a, you know, a wave in celebrity culture, then we judge based on our perception of what good acting is and is not, whether or not they deserve to be there. Yeah. And maybe we should broaden that a bit. I'm not sure, sure. But maybe we should maybe we should expand that out a little bit. And we look at, you know, maybe the successes of like a Keanu Reeves or somebody like a Tom Cruise or something like that. And the very reason that we have like an underrated anything is because we have a certain set of preconceived notions yeah. for what we think quality might be. And then if they don't meet those standards, then
0: we have a tendency to
1: dismiss them when perhaps we shouldn't.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting as you were talking about that. And I was thinking about like, okay, well, who are the people that everybody agrees are like great actors, you know, the Mm -hmm. greatest actors of their generation, the best actors that are working today. I was immediately, I immediately thought of Sean Penn forgetting that he's, that he won best actor for the companion film. Right. right, Um, And I just thought – and it's like he's actually somebody that, that tends to bother me because I feel like he's he often over-emotes. And I feel like he, he's really – you can see how hard the actor is working, not how hard the character is working. And I thought, can you – I could absolutely see Sean Penn cast as the Hugh Jackman character in Prisoners. And I feel like the character then would be, go – because I talk about, you know, uh, the character of Keller Dover, uh, uh, the, the Jackman character. He – There's an on-the-nose quality to him. He's a fairly intense guy, and he's not very nuanced. And that Hugh Jackman seems to know exactly how to play that, whereas somehow I feel like the intensity that a Sean Penn would bring to it would actually overplay the hand. And then it's just like, this guy should be just sweating blood all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There's a certain effortlessness. And I say that knowing that the character of Keller there's a lot that goes into that character. There's definitely a lot of effort that goes into that character, but there's a certain naturalism to Hugh Jackman, no matter what character he's playing, that I just buy it. I just buy it a hundred percent. He's very charismatic on screen, but not so much that I think, you know, there are some actors, some movie stars that no matter who they played and no matter how, how, uh, how in the moment and how naturalistic they were, that's, you know, I'm always looking at Jack Nicholson. He's one of my favorite actors ever, but sure. I'm always looking at Jack Nicholson. Immensely here as well. um, yeah. Hugh Jackman is not that. Like, I'm looking at Jean Valjean. I'm looking at Wolverine. I'm looking at uh, Keller Dover. Right. You know, uh, and we should move on, uh, and we don't necessarily need to go through every member of the cast, but Jake Gyllenhaal, this, this, I think, was the movie that got people to look at him as, hey, wait a minute. Between I, and I think maybe Zodiac started this, but when you look at what his character is in this movie, I think there was this general attitude. And I apologize for being so reductive. there's a general attitude of like, "Hey, Pretty Boy a pretty good uh, character actor <laughs> now that I look at it." And you look at him in this, and then in Enemy, and then a, a, eventually in Nightcrawler, and you realize, "Oh wow, yeah, there's there's some there's some stuff going on here." There, there are, you know, I feel like there are a lot of really wonderful character actors who actually have been cursed to be too attractive. Hmm. And so they get cast as, you know, the lead in movies and I, and not to say that Jake Gyllenhaal couldn't be uh, a lead, but he's like, I think he's like Johnny Depp and that they're both very good looking guys. And if they were less good looking, I think the parts, I think they would get more interesting parts more often. Now, Johnny Depp, thankfully, because he, locked onto Tim Burton early enough. He got a lot of character roles. Right. Um, and I think Jake Gyllenhaal only now in the last few years, I think people are starting to recognize the potential and the kind of actor he actually is, as opposed to the kind of actor he looks like. I agree with that. You know, he looks like the guy who can carry Prince of Persia. (laughs) He is not. Nope. (laughs) He is the guy that can carry Nightcrawler and blow everyone away. Yeah. Um, and win a BP best actor award. (laughs) Um, so and I think he's he's great in this and he, this is also a character that runs the risk of being a bit on the nose. He's very twitchy. Uh, yeah, it's a, in many ways a very mannered performance. But what's underneath it, the emotion underneath it, is I think a hundred percent authentic. Yeah, um, And like I said, these two characters together, and they don't have that many scenes together, but these they're like parallel narratives. Really, just drive the the film forward to the point that yes, two and a half hours. And it's a hard two and a half hours, mm-hmm. but it flew by for me. Yeah, when I watched it. Well, and I think the the
1: what those two actors. I mean, their scenes with each other uh, just crackle with with intensity. But one that specifically comes to mind about what they're doing as actors is the scene where mm-hmm. all's character has to ask him to identify from the pictures yeah. the clothing. And I can remember looking at that moment and once a photo emerges that Hugh Jackman recognizes as his daughter's sock. Yeah. You see him and I'm reluctant to get into the companion film, but if you've seen Mystic River, you know Sean Penn's reaction yes. to finding out what happened to his daughter. Um uh, I'm, I'll just go ahead and say is that my Oscar in there? Is that yeah. my Oscar in there? Um but uh but as opposed to Hugh Jackman who given everything that we've seen him do in at that point in the film and he's done a lot of things that he that he already is kind of you know feels very passionate about and is a little conflicted about when he sees that photo his reaction to it is of a certain type and it, he's sort of fighting back tears and fighting back emotion but then you also in the corner of the table see Jake Gyllenhaal's reaction mm. and then when Hugh Jackman says to him Uh, You know, he says to him, you wasted time following me. You wasted time. You let this happen. And you see Jake Gyllenhaal, who doesn't have to really emote anything, but you see what's kind of bubbling underneath the surface for him. And both of the the two of them as actors in that moment, there's so much subtext in that scene. I don't know how much of it was in the script, but there's so much subtext in those performances that is – incredibly palpable that you could just you feel every bit of the weight of despair and the weight of uh, a kind of devastation that settles in over both yeah. of them that uh, i think I, I think lesser actors would not have been able to make that scene as intense as it is it's not inherent in the script but they bring that level of intensity to it and i think they're both just incredible in this film
0: well and they're seen in the car as well uh yes where Jake Gyllenhaal, and you you might need to uh, correct me on, on this. It's, I haven't seen the film in a while, but uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's been following uh, Hugh Jackman, and at one point uh, I think he invites Hugh Jackman into his car. Is that what it is? Yeah, because what and happens
1: then, is Hugh Jackman's about to – Jake, Hugh, the moment that Hugh Jackman realizes Jake Gyllenhaal is following him, yeah. he comes and confronts him. Okay, and when right. he confronts him and says, why are you following
0: me? Jake Gyllenhaal says, get in the car. Yeah. And that's when it happens. And that scene is great. Oh, it's wonderful. Because there's, you know, on top of everything else, there's the layer of, you know, Hugh Jackman's character is also lying mm-hmm. a, a lot of the time uh, to his wife, to Jake Gyllenhaal. Um so you're seeing a char- you know you're seeing a guy who can't help but be himself all the time have to lie yeah. and sometimes he's a good liar sometimes he is not mm-hmm. and you know that's another layer to to Hugh Jackman's performance um so uh we we should move on um there's, there's just, there's so much to talk about with this film, and, and I feel bad that we spent so much time talking purely about uh, the performances. Again, it's written fairly well, yeah. Um, and it is gorgeous to look at. I think it's such a strong pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's consistent. There's a certain dread to it. Like this is what I mean when I say that there's a, a horror movie element to it. Um, you know, there is also some weird things in the script that are horrific like a like a just a big trunk full of snakes multiple trunks full yeah. of snakes yeah. which I was unprepared for <laughs> that has nothing to do with the case Like mm-hmm. that to me speaks to first off again the pulpy nature of the script but also the gothic nature of the script the idea that the guy who has trunks full of snakes mm. is not related to this case right and it sort of implies this idea of like the deeper into this film you go, the more the more you realize how ugly people are. Mm. Um and this guy is just ugly in his own way. Yeah. Um and one could say it's a it's a very I won't say nihilistic, but it's a very pessimistic film um about people. Uh to the point that when you do have a guy who is seemingly motivated by love, mm. Because people are as one could say fallen as they are, um, that even what he does out of love winds up being so hateful and yeah. so brutal and mm-hmm. violent that it negates any concept of love that is inside him. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so listeners, uh, we're not wrapping up, but uh, you know, listeners, if you haven't seen Prisoners, seek it out. It's definitely worth watching. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think it's an absolutely amazing film, but there are so many amazing things about it that, you know, unsurprisingly, and I say, I feel like I say this every time we do an episode um, because I haven't seen it in, it's probably, I probably saw it like nine or 10 months ago. Oh, okay. um, but I feel like I want to watch it right now, hmm. but why on earth would I want to watch so such a difficult movie? And it's because it's propulsive. There are characters that I relate to and it's just a well-made film and it just draws you in whether you want to be drawn in or not. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to me that, uh, Denis Villeneuve has not made a straight up horror movie. There are horror, there are horrific elements to Sicario. There definitely are to enemy. Yes. Um, and there are to this as well. And I know that he is going to be directing the Blade Runner sequel Oh, I had forgotten that. Yeah. I had even forgotten that they were making one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, my first instinct is I prefer they not make one, but Right. That's this probably isn't bad uh, a bad choice for director. Yeah. But I would I I want to see him. I want to ha- I want him to direct a horror movie.
1: Yeah. Like a, a straight horror, horror. movie. Mm-hmm.
0: Um so uh so let's let's delve into this a little bit. Uh and I guess we'll we'll use the character of Keller to to do this. Um so as you mentioned, he is a religious guy, uh, Christian. Um, I'm not sure if it's if he's uh, Catholic or Protestant.
1: Yeah cuz it's interesting there's no there's no real catholic adornments yeah. about his character like, there's no rosary nothing like that yeah. ever but there's a definite liturgical quality to how he carries yes. his faith um so if if not catholic he's probably one of the more liturgical brands of protestantism like lutheran or yeah. episcopalian
0: something like that but yeah he's he's definitely a liturgical believer um and there's 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 a certain piety to him, and and I feel like it's a very we'll – co- we'll come back to this idea of control. I do feel like there is a number of people, and I'm sure I, – and I, I know that I've fallen into it. I'm sure you've fallen into it. I think every Christian does at some point. There's this feeling that, okay, well, if I do what I'm supposed to do, you know, uh, then, you know, I'm not going to have a perfect life by any stretch, but I'm not going to encounter any major tragedy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we would be very quick to say that if somebody does encounter major tragedy, we wouldn't say it's because they did anything wrong. It's right. just like, hey, these things happen. They just don't happen to me. Right. You know? Uh, and, you know, I feel like, you know, for me, uh, there have been times when I've tried to do the right thing, not because it's the right thing, but, uh, you know, the the my go-to example, and I've said it before on the show, is, you know, if Jen when Jen has been like traveling, like, but I'm here at home, you know, obviously like porn temptation is, you know, through the roof, but I I am ashamed to say that there have been times when the only thing keep that has kept me from, you know, looking at porn. then this was before I had like the various things on my, you know, the various safeguards on my computer and so, um, but before that, uh, it's like, Oh, I'm going to be alone for five days. Here we go. Wait, hang on. God might kill Jen, uh, through a plane crash or something like that. And it's like, and it was a combination of things, which was not, not always cause and effect, but more. If Jen were to die, is this what I want to be able is, do I want to live with the fact that I was doing this while she was gone? Mm. But there was still definitely, uh, an unspoken cause and effect quality there as if to say as if god would say huh he doesn't seem to be appreciating uh, his wife so you know what i'll do this never mind what jen wants and oh. never mind what jen's going to do you know it's a very very uh, dark view of god but underneath all of that is the assumption of control mm-hmm. that even mm-hmm. on a metaphysical spiritual level what i do will will control what in its own way what god does there's you know if i do something bad god will do something bad if i if i do everything right god will not allow anything too bad to happen to me right um and i now i recognize that that is 100% wrong um and that there is plenty of biblical precedent for things not going great for the people that do everything right for example jesus <laughs> things don't always go great for him. And he does literally everything right. Yep. Um, But uh, I would say that Hugh Jackman's character, though he might not admit it, I think he definitely is a guy who has a clear idea that I'm living my life right. I'm believing the right things. And so surely everything should go well. And then when it doesn't, it's okay. I have no control over the situation or do I, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it's the idea of like sitting back and letting the cops do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, And if you want to get larger, letting God do what he's supposed to do. Right. Right. Um, Rather than do that, it's, Sorry, I didn't mean to say supposed to, but letting God do what he's going to do. What he's going to do. Um, Rather than that, he just, you know, the Keller character just jumps into action. Mm -hmm. And uh, which brings me to another element that I didn't want to delve that deeply into, but I can't help but think about it. Is there something uniquely American to the way that Keller is a Christian? Um, if by that you
1: mean, is there something in the like uh, a sense of responsibility?
0: I think that yes. Um, and just a sense of agency that, like in mm-hmm. in the U.S., it's no one's going to give you anything. Mm-hmm. You got to go out and do it for yourself. Like, and one could say like individualism. Like, hey, go out and do things for yourself. Yes, and honestly the opening shot he's doing something that is one could say very american he's hunting with his son right Mm -hmm. and he's bringing his religion into it Mm -hmm. as well and so i think there is a very specific type of american culture that his character either consciously or unconsciously embraces and i think he bring i think he associates that very much with his faith uh, in a way, once again, that he might not be totally aware of. Am I yeah. out of line in thinking that?
1: No, I don't think so. In fact, the moment that you're, uh, just a second ago, something like a light bulb went off, there's a scene where he is, I don't know how much we want to say for the people who might not have seen this film, but uh, when he is, is doing the thing that that we as the audience are supposed to find very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, there's a moment where... Uncomfortable seems like a euphemism. Let's say abhorrent. Yeah, it is pretty vile. Um, but there's a prayer that he prays. He mm. stops right in the middle of this this uh, torturous thing that he's doing. And he says a prayer. And the prayer is very centered around what do you want me to do? Like, yeah. not what is happening. Not... Uh, You know, help me come to terms with anything. It's not of that variety. It's what am I supposed to do here? Like, what are you waiting for me to do? And I do think active, not passive. Yes, exactly right. And I think that is a particularly American quality. To say that, you know, there's a line in No Country for Old Men that uh, I loved so much that I think of it so many, you know, in so many other contexts now, where one character says to the Tommy Lee Jones character, he says, you can't stop what's coming. It's not all just waiting on you. Yeah, I loved that phrasing. It's not all just waiting on you. Yeah. Because I feel like, as you alluded to earlier with some of the temptations when, you know, your wife goes out of town or, or something like that happens, I know for myself, there is such a temptation to simply think the world revolves around me yeah to simply think that that you know as you as you put that uh you know never mind everybody else when i make the bad choice then every bad thing that happens thereafter has to be my fault yeah because i made this other choice as if Everything was just waiting to see what I was going to do. Yeah. And I think that very specifically is an American component of Christianity because biblically-based Christianity is much more community-centered. Yes, But I think that the sort of American variety of it centralizes that down to an individual mindset of like, okay, well, this this particular thing is waiting for me to take action. And I think Hugh Jackman's character, that's his biggest problem, is he feels that he has been sort of tasked with fixing this. Yeah, I love the scene in the car. I love it from a performance perspective. I love it from a script perspective and a thematic perspective. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie where he's talking to Jake Gyllenhaal and says, you know, she's waiting every single day wondering why I'm not coming to save her. Not you, me. And then you see his emotions start to get the better of him. And he starts really getting sort of self-violent in that moment of, you know, like why, why, am I not helping her yet? Why am I not doing this? And it's very centralized around his behavior and his action, which I do think is something that we have lost the sense of community that, um, you know, everybody wants to know, it's amazing to me, now that we're sitting here in this conversation, everybody wants to know like, you know, what are my spiritual gifts? What is, you know, what what do I have to contribute? I feel the pressure that I need to perform at this level, or I need to do this thing. And I think we've lost the balance of recognizing that we are simultaneously very special to God and that we're very loved, mm-hmm. but at the same time that doesn't mean that we are you know the center of all things no. that we are the, um, the, the nexus of what everything else is sort of revolving around nucleus is the word I was looking for not nexus but I think we, we lose some of that in this idea of American individualism.
0: And, you know, and I don't mean to imply that there's something inherently wrong with, you know, uh, being, uh, being American in your mentality, but if you are any kind of Christian except for a biblical Christian, your spirituality is going to be tainted. Yes. You know, and while I have very specific ideas about uh, the positives and negatives of the United States of America, <laughs> one thing that I know for sure is that it's not... The Bible, it is not God, right. it is not Jesus, no matter how much any one country might embrace those things, right, it is still going to be flawed. And right. to put your faith, not to imply that the character is putting his faith in the United States, but, <laughs> you know, anything you put your faith into, even a country that you think is great, um, it's going to let you down at some point. Yeah. Whether directly or indirectly, which is to say, the philosophies underneath the country that you start to graft onto your spirituality, uh, that will let you down when you realize, hmm, these actually don't go together. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, spoilers. We're moving on to spoiler country. So you stay behind, go watch prisoners, and come back. So Melissa Leo's character. I see in her, uh, so I just took this Alfred Hitchcock class. Oh, yeah, which I'm very jealous about, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I have a whole stack of readings uh, on my desk over there. You can borrow (laughs) them and read them (laughs) and uh, be alternately uh, invigorated and infuriated uh, because every once in a while... And I know this is weird coming from me on this show. Every once in a while you read one where you're like, guy, you're reading too much into it. You know, it's like, there's a lot going on in North by Northwest, but there cannot feasibly be this much going on in North by Northwest. But, um, but one thing that we talk about is the idea. Um, and you find this a lot in the, in Hitchcock, the idea of the, the villain being a dark mirror image of the, for lack of a better term, hero. Now it's hard to view Hugh Jackman's character as a hero. Um, But but Melissa Leo's character is worse than he is. Unquestionably. Yeah. And she is spiritual. She is a, a, it's hard to say that she's a Christian, but she definitely believes in God and she definitely believes that God is actively involved in this world. And she – now, again, you saw more recently than I did. I believe she and her husband lost a son. To cancer. To cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing – in his case, he lost a daughter because she was taken. So there's actually a thing that he can do. When it's cancer, there's only so much you can do. Right. And – It's the, it's the essence of powerlessness. It's the essence of a lack of control, a loss of control that is her all around. And so whether it be, you know, whether the idea of control is her particular, uh, idol or the idea of her son being a particular idol, whatever it is, um, her experience mirrors Hugh Jackman's yeah uh and i wish i could say and now she actually as bad as his reaction is to it she actually found a way to react the one the one way that is worse um, <laughs> and oh so gosh you know so i guess he looks better by comparison but he's far from being the hero and in both cases the thing that makes them both in i would say terrible people um maybe even monstrous definitely in her case, but I'd say maybe in his as well. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. The thing that makes the mantra mo- both monstrous is something that they have in common, which is like a deep frustration over the lack of control and the, their inability to square that with their faith. She says something to
1: him at uh, near the climax of the film. It's after she's been revealed to be the primary yeah. villain, and she says something to him, and it's it stood out so profoundly to me in again all areas. she says that uh okay so so I, I think we can safely say what what it is that she does um as a result of her um losing this child, she and her husband decide I ah, don't know how you come to this conclusion, yeah, but they decide to begin abducting children, yeah and so she says to Hugh Jackman's character um, we take children to wage war with god yeah and she she uses those terms wage war with god and then she says something even more interesting than that because that you know could be seen as kind of surfacy on the, on the nose and cheap she said it's to make demons out of people like you yeah. and 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 it's it's she's been successful yeah she has successfully Crafted of a man who is a devout man, she's successfully turned him into a monster. And that was the that was the part from a sort of religious theme that I found most compelling, yeah, is this idea of because of a personal tragedy, she is now going to see how many other people she can turn. Against the notion of a benevolent God by, you know, by taking the, the, the thing that they love the most in the world and by taking it from them, then she somehow, and she definitely does with Hugh Jackman, turns them into monsters.
0: You know, and it's, this is a weird comparison to make, and this is not the companion film. Uh, It's sort of like Unbreakable, (laughs) where the... The terrible things that Samuel Jackson's character is willing to do. Now, in his case, it's so that he can find somebody to be his his nemesis or whatever. yeah, um, but in this case, the nemesis would be a good person, and he, by his own admission, would be a bad person. Um, because my guess is that of the various children that she has abducted, my guess is none of the parents have been as using her own words, as demonic as Keller has been. Yes. They have probably gotten angry at God. Maybe they lost their faith. Who knows? But as far as their actions in this world, um, they probably did not do anything as, as awful as Keller does. And so it's almost like he gave her so, he gave her exactly what she wanted. She couldn't have, she couldn't have pictured it better. No. Um, And that, you know, can you imagine it? And, I mean, another comparison is, you know, John Doe at the end of Seven, which Mm -hmm. is he did this thing assuming the worst of people. Yeah. And assuming the worst of Brad Pitt. And, you know, I think if any of us were in Brad Pitt's situation at the end of Seven, we'd all probably do the same thing. Because at that point, you don't really have all your faculties. No. Um, No. So, uh, but nonetheless, like, at the end of seven, John Doe assumes the worst and is, and is confirmed. Mm -hmm. And the Holly Jones in prisoners, I think she understands the way people idolize their children, their family, whatever it is, because she herself probably did that. You know, if you, if you want to wage war on God because you lost your own son, then your son was your actual God. Mm. Um, And so she, Saw this thing in herself, assumed that any number of other people and parents would experience the same thing in their own way. And then Keller Keller delivers this in a way that she might have expected at some point. But boy, oh boy, he did everything she needed him to do. Um, And because he so badly, this came about because she felt a definite loss of control and he was so desperate to get it. Mm-hmm. um in his own uh in his own case so you know uh we will uh start to move on a bit um one of the things that uh so the companion film is mystic river directed by clint howard and written by brian helgeland once again based on the novel by dennis lahane clint eastwood what did i say clint howard ha oh man if yeah. only. wouldn't that be great <laughs> yeah sorry clint eastwood uh the film was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Marsha Gay Harden. It won Best Actor for Sean Penn and Best Supporting Actor for Tim Robbins. Uh, it is a film that is very, very good, if not occasionally great. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, my favorite my favorite character, maybe my favorite performance in the film is the one that did not get any awards recognition, which is Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. I He's think he does excellent. a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is a scene at the end of the film that needs to be removed because it comes too late and it's too big. And it's Laura Linney's big scene, her lady Macbeth scene. Yes. Her performance is good. It's well-written. You bring, you put that scene in 20 minutes earlier, I'm on board, but it's like the last thing in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like it's the thematic anchor and, oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. That is a, a huge misfire in my opinion. Um, but the, the, the story of mystic river is that, um, Sean Penn plays, uh, this, he's a mob boss is not correct. He's a low level hood, but he has some criminal ties. He's been in jail and all that sort of thing. Um, but he's trying to live a good life now. And he has a daughter who, uh, is abducted and is found to be killed. (laughs) And so he's trying to figure out what happened. And in the meantime, his childhood friend, played by Tim Robbins, when when this ki- when they were kids, his friend was abdu- was abducted by a priest and molested, and then you know uh, redeposited back onto the streets of Boston, Damn. and has to live the rest of his life. And just and as played by Tim Robbins, like every once in a while it feels like maybe he's being a little bit on the nose, but there's a it's a really good haunted performance. Like this yes. is a guy who he's gone on to he has a job, he has a wife, he has kids, but like you kind of get the impression he's maybe only 40% there at yeah. any time. Like the rest of him stayed in the car with the priest many years ago. Yeah.
1: hmm. Uh,
0: but everybody knows. So this, guy, the Tim Robbins character's name is Dave Boyle. Everybody knows what he went through. Cause the, the nature of, you know, South Boston, everybody knows everybody else's business. Yeah. Everybody knows what he went, to, what he went through, and so when this girl goes missing and something terrible happens, and it's senseless, people think like, okay, well, let's see, let's think back to the various senseless crimes that have happened here. Hey, you know what? This guy might have uh, had something yeah. to do with it. And admittedly, like, there's you know some unfortunate like coincidences that happen that could lead people to think that he did it. Um, but. Sean Penn's character, Jimmy, decides that uh, even though the cops are looking into this and they're trying to figure out what happened, he's going to do his own thing. Yeah. And there comes a scene where uh, he's sitting on a porch and he's actually talking to Tim Robbins, and this is before he suspects him, and he's talking about feeling like he let his daughter, he's he's let his daughter down, I can't even, he says, I can't even cry for her, you know? Yeah. This is a guy who feels like he has no control, mm-hmm. and it's probably a guy who's had a fair amount of control his whole life. Yeah. control over uh his actions, control over other people. Um, he's had people killed like this is a guy who to be reductive, is used to getting thing getting what he wants yeah um and so but now he's experienced this horrible thing, and he just feels. He feels like, I can't even cry. Like, I can't do anything. And then he falls back in with, you know, his his criminal contacts and arrives at, uh, independently arrives at, it must have been my friend, my old friend that did this. Because who else who else could? This is so senseless. Nobody has any motivation for doing it. And it's close enough to what happened to my friend that maybe there's just something in there. You know, he's clearly broken, so what are we going to do? Well, and there's one element to it that, uh,
1: uh, you know, I'll insert that I found so horrific about Mystic River is that whatever suspicions he may or may not have had about Dave Boyle, um, Dave Boyle's wife comes to him and flat out says it. Yeah. Flat out says that she thinks... He did it. Yeah. And any, any sort of potential that he had in his, that's the verdict. The verdict is immediately yeah. cast once she sort of pushes him over the edge. And now he, uh, the, I think the thing that, that I found most haunting about it is it only took one voice, admittedly a, a close voice yeah. with, with a reasonable amount of, of uh, evidence yeah. to, to support it. But it only took that one voice to confirm, like, you're right. And then he just he, it, it completely ignoring yeah. any potential evidence to the contrary, yeah. um, a- even to the degree of ignoring what Dave himself is saying really happened. Yeah. Um, and, and he's just heard that one affirming voice, and then he just is so completely dead yeah. sure that this is, this is the way things went down, and this is what I have to do because of the way things that went down
0: yeah there's a definite uh now the way that it is shot, it doesn't necessarily feel as as i as I was saying with prisoners it doesn't definitely doesn't feel operatic but it feels tragic yes, it just feels like because there's enough coincidence that yeah I might roll my eyes at it a little bit, but it definitely feels like an old school Greek tragedy, enough things have aligned, yeah that Dave Boyle was doomed. Like his yes. his his whole life, he's been doomed, mm-hmm. and and that's a thing that that they even acknowledge uh, at the end of the film. Like yeah. Jimmy, who uh who has reason to hate this guy. Now, once it's revealed that actually he's not who did it, he says he's being uh, uh, not interrogated, but he's being questioned by the police, and he says, "When did you last see Dave Boyle?" Mm-hmm. And he. Now, he doesn't say, well, the last time I saw him was a couple days ago when I stabbed him repeatedly and killed him. <laughs> now, he can't say that, but what he says is something that I think he actually believes, which is yeah. the last time I saw Dave Boyle, it was in the back of a car 30 years ago driving down that street. Yeah. Because the kid that came back after being molested by that priest was definitely a different kid. Yeah, it was And it insane. was just a matter of time before... And and everybody, that's the other thing is like there's there's a real element of sadness um, to Dave's story because I believe somebody even refers to him as tainted goods or something like that when the kid comes right. back. Yeah, is that, yes, he's a victim. But the nature of what happened to him is so horrendous that everyone just assumes like, oh, yeah, he's definitely changed and mm-hmm. probably changed into something that is irredeemable. Like he's not a human anymore. So it's very easy for his wife mm-hmm. and for everybody else in the community to say, yeah, it was probably him. How could it not be? Look what he did. Right. He is broken.
1: Yeah. And there's a visual cue. Uh, I'll just say this very briefly. There's a visual cue that might be a little too on the nose or too sort of metaphorically um. Bullseye'd. Um, when Dave Boyle as a little child is is abducted, they're writing their names in the sand, or they're mm-hmm. writing their names in concrete, sorry. Yeah. They're writing their names in cement. Jimmy writes his whole name. Sean writes his whole name. Yeah. But Dave only gets the D and the A yeah. before he's stopped and abducted. And it's after uh, Jimmy's character says, the last time I saw him was in the backseat of that car,
0: yeah.
1: uh, the camera pans to that cement where yeah. you see that Dave uh, in a sense was only ever half there. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's again, a, a bit on the nose visually, but I think very effective because it's yeah. true.
0: Well, and that's one of the things that I like about Clint Eastwood as a director is that even when he's doing on the nose things, the way that he makes movies with the possible exception of Gran Torino, the way that he makes movies is so matter of fact mm-hmm. that, you know, if the script is on the nose, then it will stay that because he doesn't change the script, which I think right. is actually to his detriment. But um, but he's not gonna he's he he won't really go out of his way to underline it he won't like have a big musical swell. The one big uh exception is of course the is about my daughter in there right you know right, but right, beyond right. that, you know having that shot is very on the nose and yet somehow it feels right it doesn't feel like I'm right. being hit over the head um but yeah, and so. You know, with both Prisoners and Mystic River, one of the things that we're talking about is revenge. Now, we've talked about revenge before on the show, and there are plenty of movies that talk about revenge. We did a whole episode of Battleship Pretension about revenge movies, and just, and the big theme is that the nature of revenge versus justice um, is that revenge is going, is inherently subjective, you know? Justice is blind. Now, sometimes it gets things wrong. Uh, Sometimes people slip through the cracks, and and that is an unfortunate reality. Whereas, you know, uh, to to go with uh, Tim Roth's, uh, referencing a lot of other movies, Tim Roth's little monologue in The Hateful Eight, he says, now the thing about frontier justice is it's very (laughs) thirst-quenching. And that's the thing is, Revenge feels thirst quenching for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I'm doing something
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'm not powerless, you know, I might not be able to bring my little girl back, but boy oh boy i'm going to I'm going to get some level of balance in this universe, yeah, like somebody took her from me, that person can't be allowed to walk around, so at least they're both gone, you know, and that is how I'm able to. Have a certain exert a certain degree of control over this universe, um, and it's worth noting that in both Prisoners and Mystic River, they are wrong.
1: Yeah, they've they've you know? gone down the wrong path in in a very literal way and in yeah. in a, in a uh, emotional and figurative yeah. way. They've they've just sort of lost themselves, and I think that what was significant because we had I don't think we've really implicitly stated it in Prisoners, um, he is. Trying to, I mean, he's he's honed in on who he thinks he's guilty yeah. and who he think who he thinks has done it, and has done some horrific things to this person yeah. to try to exact a confession and to try to exact his truth. Um, you know, whereas it's interesting to me because in prisoners jackman's character you know keller is is basically trying to uh make things right he's trying to yeah. you know get his daughter back and he's trying to yeah. you know find her and he's in a sense feels like he's not giving up um whereas again i guess because sean penn's character in mystic river knows his daughter is already right. dead um so that's a different element right there he is very much like punishment yeah. and this is the time you're going to... I mean, he, he calls it that. Even though he knows he's about to kill him, yeah. He said, you're, you're going to do the time for this. And yeah. the time, he means, is eternity. But um, I think it's interesting the different... The, the, both of them do so much the same thing, yeah. um, but for for different goals, one of them is trying to sort of make everything back right with the world, and the other one is trying to sort of um, exact a penance yeah. from the, uh, yeah. from the guilty party. Yeah. But as you said... Both of them are have
0: got the wrong guy, and I definitely think that Hugh Jackman's character. He, I think, he's probably about 50% sure that his daughter's gone already, Mm, right? So, as he's trying to get a not a confession, he's trying to, I mean, I guess it's that, but it's also like, I just want to, I want information, I want to know where she is, I want to know all these things. As he ostensibly, that's what he's trying to get out of this, but he's aware that. Most kids are not recovered after a certain amount of time. And it's yeah. been that amount of time. And so while he is seeming to be proactive in a way that makes a certain degree of sense, not the execution of it, obviously. Um, I think the degree to which he tortures this guy is a f- that covers the other 50 percent, which yeah. is my daughter is probably dead and I think this guy did it. So I'm going to really take it to him. He's going to suffer. And, uh, you know, and that's and that's the thing is it's I feel like it's probably unlikely that either that any of us are going to try to exact this type of revenge on somebody or anything like that. But how many times in our own lives do we. I think it does often it is often linked to having an idol taken away from us mm-hmm. um, I was talking I was talking with a friend uh, just recently who is an actor and about a year ago started having some major voice issues cannot he can talk but he can't talk the way an actor needs to talk he can't really project and he was and he was somebody who could do voices and accents and he can't do that anymore mm. and he said it really threw him into uh, a spiral and he became a very like a a very difficult husband and he kind of withdrew from his friends and from the church and that sort of thing. And, you know, and he said that clearly that's where he was getting his identity. And, you know, I have my idols, you have yours. And I hope that were those to ever be taken away, that my faith in God and his control over, the world and of the universe and of my own life, that that would prevail. And that I wouldn't that obviously I'd be sad. I'd be heartbroken and all of that, but I wouldn't be completely lost, you know, Mm -hmm. and because I think you, you nailed it. Keller, the ex you know, the, uh, his external circumstances have been thrown into a, a tailspin, but over the course of the film, His whatever is going on inside him, you know, whoever he is at the beginning of the film, just slowly but surely just dissolves and gets lost because he there's going to try to get his idol back or is he's going to make the world pay Mm -hmm. for for taking it. Yeah. Um, And so. And it's it's so interesting the way that we. Will bring this into our faith. Where ultimately, you know, and as always, I will bring up The Great Divorce, um, the C.S. Lewis book, where you you have characters who, yes, some of them seem to love God, but in the end, they definitely view God as a means to an end. God is the one that will keep my idol around. yes, And then we're good. Mm-hmm. And then when the idol doesn't, and, but you don't, I, you don't know that. Like none of us really acknowledges that. Yeah. But then when it's taken, if it's taken away, that's when you suddenly realize, oh, okay, I guess, I guess this is who I was the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I wanted to, now I have some verses that are very specifically about revenge, but I think a lot of these ideas can be uh, applied to other things. So the first is Romans twelve nineteen. Uh, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then that reference is Deuteronomy 32:35. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their time of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. So I'm looking at these verses And I'm seeing, you know, leave room for God's wrath. Now that definitely does apply to revenge, but if we want to, let's, let's put the word wrath to the side, leave room for God. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this other one in due time, their foot will slip in due time. Yeah. It, this is all about letting God take care of it. However, he's going to take care of it, allowing room in your life for him to deal with this and understanding it might not happen in a way that you witness, that Mm -hmm. you see. But in due time, and it could be, I could be speaking in a cosmic sense, in due time, everything will be made right. Mm -hmm. And that might not necessarily mean that the person who did this terrible thing is going to go to jail or or whatever. It just means that eternally, everything will be made right. And if you latch yourself to that, then as heartbreaking and as horrible as it can be to have, you know, these things that, that you value, I won't even say I- idols at this point, these things that you value and you love and you treasure, if they're taken away, yes, it will be horrible and you can be mad at God and all that sort of thing. It's understandable, but it's not going, you won't lose yourself the way Keller loses himself. Right. Um, you still will have a, a firm basis for your identity. Mm -hmm. And for your actions, you know, but if you, and the idea of, of not having control is something that in some cases will be frustrating, but in other cases will be liberating. Yeah. Because in many cases, thank God we don't have ultimate control over our own lives. Yeah. You know, if I had ultimate control, because uh, so much about me being in school right now. And I don't, I don't like to say this because we can't always look at the events of our lives and see God's hand in them, in them, because it's there all the time. Right. But like for me, when it comes to school, and I'm going to be very open, and this is going to involve a financial discussion. Um, by the time I felt like I wanted to go back to school, UCLA had just completely restructured their master's program. Like literally within, like just in time for me to go. I had a friend who was at UCLA who walked me through the application process. I applied, I got accepted. Okay, so far I'm being proactive, I'm doing all that. I didn't have to be accepted, but I was, and that's great. But I had been been coached. So then... When I start so financially, I couldn't really afford to go to u c l a but when you live in California, it's much cheaper and then, for the first year like this is this is a thing they haven't done before. they started this year if you are accepted to the master's program as I am, you get a stipend of ten thousand hmm. dollars now that's they're not just giving you a big stack of cash, it goes to your tuition, obviously sure yeah, so yeah. suddenly, my it's like, okay, so now any kind of financial consideration is out the window. Like that's not a, n- not out the window, but it's not as big of a concern as, as it was. There's no reason financially for me to not do this. Right. And then right. on top of everything else, and this really is just a cherry on top. There's a, uh, cause Jen and I are thinking like, am I going to need to get a car? All right. You right, know. right. There's a bus that is half a block from my house. I can get on it and it will drop me off. Uh, about 45 seconds away from the exact building on UCLA (laughs) I will be I go to yeah you know and obviously you know people can it feels reductive to even put it in, in that way but just I feel like God has, has not been very, has never been very subtle with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked about, uh, more than one lesson itself as I, it was a thing I wanted to do. And then I lost my job and I couldn't pay for it. And then out of the blue, somebody else said, here's some money so you can do it for a year. Yeah. You know, I literally had no reason not to do it. Yeah. You know, and so much of this stuff is out of my control. Mm-hmm. So much of this stuff just works out. Um, and, if I had control over all of this, I'm bad at most things. Um, I can talk about movies. That's about it. I think I, I think I was listing my little, uh, mental resume and I'm out. I'm, I'm, uh, the well's coming up dry. Talking about movies. Check. Yes. And end of the list. it's a big check. Don't get me wrong, but that is the end of the list. Um, and so, you know, it's, when you, th- when you look at so many things that people despair about when it comes to faith, people talk about fairness. People talk about, you know, well, why is there a hell? Why is there this and that? And, you know, right. it's like, oh, I, I have a hard time giving things over to God. You know, you know, thank God that things aren't, quite literally, like, thank God things aren't actually fair because if it were mm-hmm. fair we'd all be screwed. Yeah. Thank yeah. God that we're not actually totally in charge of our lives all the time. Because exactly. if that were the case well I think we'd all be screwed again, you know. <laughs> I definitely know I would be. Yeah. Um so again it can be liberating it can be encouraging if you let it be. But that's if God is is the priority in your life. That's if God is the rock that you've built your house on. Right. If you build it on anything else then Then God having control of your life is something to to be terrified of Mm -hmm. because, wait a minute, if God's in control of my life, he might take away this thing that I'm basing my identity on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and once and once that's gone, you have no identity and you wind up doing things that you never thought you would well the verse that it makes me
1: think of and i'm I'm embarrassed as i usually am that i can't recall chapter and verse or where it's located but what it makes me think of that you're talking about is the he who seeks to save his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will will find it uh which to me particularly as it relates to this conversation is almost all about control yeah that those who would want to maintain everything that they have, that they would call their own, even to their own very life, it will slip right through your fingers. Yeah. But if you are willing to, from this Christian perspective, relinquish that control, yeah. then you might be amazed at how, as you've already illustrated from personal experience, things will sometimes just tend to line up. And no, it doesn't happen that way every single time. Maybe those instances are are rather rare in the large scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'd be difficult to quantify that. But basically the point being, that the thing that is assured is that the harder you try to maintain control as in the fictional examples of Keller, um, and Jimmy, that the more you try to maintain control, the more you realize how much of yourself you've lost in that, in that effort. But the, the more that you will just relinquish and, and trust, the more you might find that there is grace there
0: to bring other things into it. And, you know, uh, and in case anybody is hearing what we're saying and is feeling frustrated at the notion of, it's like, yeah, you're bringing up instances where God had control and things went great. Right. I've been to enough funerals in my life <laughs> and been frustrated yeah. and been angry enough. Like we just passed the the 10th anniversary of, uh, of an old friend of mine named Willie, uh, the 10th anniversary of his death at the beginning of July. And just made me realize like how much i missed him you know i talk about yeah. i talk a lot about my dad but like let's l- let's not fail to recognize that a previous guest of this podcast died of cancer we just hit three years uh, since he passed away yeah um I would prefer that not be the case. I would prefer that none of these people be dead. There's a lot of things that I would prefer. And God was in control of that as well.
1: Yeah. And
0: I don't understand it. Why would such a bad thing happen? I don't know. Would I trade the, uh, the uh, $10,000 college stipend for any of these people being back? Yeah. Uh, I would. <laughs> eh. That's, that, that, last, <laughs> that last part was a joke. Um, yeah, of course I would. Yeah. Um, you know, And I would say it's not even, it's not even proportional you know, once right. you've experienced death and grief, nothing else, no matter how great. Hang on, seemingly nothing else can compare, and, and le- until, of course, I realize, like, oh yeah, God brought a wonderful woman into my life. You know, you right. have a right. you have a son, right, uh, and yeah. a wife. Um, so it just it ebbs and flows for people. Some people it ebbs more. Some people it flows more. And that is, yeah. and you can be frustrated at that. You know, and you can start talking about fairness again. You can talk about all that. Or you can rest assured that, you know, in due time, everything will be made right and you will be made right and your life will be made right and you will be, you know, in unity with God at that point. There is one last quote that I wanted to bring up and it is from the character of Keller Hmm. in which he says, pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. Now... To a point, I agree with that. That would seem wise, (laughs) but we see what preparing for the worst looks like for him, Yeah, which then makes me me believe, not to imply that when he prays for the best, he's not praying sincerely, but what interests me is knowing what his character does, looking at this, pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. I look at that and I say, and and what I see is, pray that God will intervene, but the way I want... But when he doesn't,
1: I'm on my own.
0: Yeah. And that is a very craven way to look at God. It's a very, Mm -hmm. very lonely way to look at spirituality. And Mm -hmm. again, this is not a bad idea. You know, you pray that you won't get in a car accident, but you buckle your seatbelt. That's that's like a practical way that I think we can all relate to. Mm -hmm. But we see that the man who says this does what he does in prisoners. Yeah. And so, you know, it's important to pray for the best, but if, and when the worst happens, you're, you can still pray. Yeah. You're still not alone.
1: I think there's a uh, there's a quality that I will just only briefly mention because it's far too deep a topic for me to even feel qualified to get into. But something that I've thought about, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation in the in the world right now, the political spectrum especially, about like uh, being, you know, responsible with our resources and responsible with, uh, you know, what we've been given. And and uh, uh, what I think is interesting is that not too many people ever talk about. Uh, maybe we've mentioned it on this show before. Uh, it feels like we have about being a good steward of your of your pain and of mm-hmm. your fear, uh, and being a good steward of your of your suffering. That that the ways in which you respond to and sort of manage your pain and your yeah. suffering, I think, is as vital many times as how you manage your resources and your time. Yeah. Um, that I think there is a way in which you can waste your pain and suffering. And only in this weird sort of reversal, when you waste resources, they run out. But when you waste pain, it produces more. Yeah. And that it sort of begins to reproduce pain and yeah. even more suffering. Um, but I think there is a way in which we can we can simply respond. Maybe it is through uh, as simple as simply praying for strength, praying for help, reaching out to to loved ones or reaching out to your greater community. Um, or you know those are those are again very off-the-cuff kind of examples. I'm sure there are deeper responses to that, but I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, about how we respond to pain and to suffering and to uh, the injustices that we see in the world around us and injustices that we ourselves have suffered. And I think it, as I said, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about about, uh, and even become a matter of prayer for me, like, help me, Lord, to be a good steward of the things that hurt me and a good steward of the things that disappoint me so that in managing them and in experiencing them, I don't then just reproduce more pain and reproduce more disappointment, which is exactly what, like, I I think it's interesting. uh, Visually, it's as so many things in Prisoners is, it's a little on the nose that um, largely the resolution of the main plot likely would have happened without Hugh Jackman's interference at all. Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal's pretty on top of it. Yeah. Um, he has some misfires here and there, and and it's not completely devoid of Hugh Jackman's actions, but um, Jake Gyllenhaal is a pretty good cop, and he's a pretty good investigator, yeah. and he gets to the bottom of it. Um, but all Hugh Jackman manages to do is literally lose himself and get thrown into a, a, a pit yeah. of despair emotionally and yeah. a literal pit. Um, which reminded me very much of the vanishing that's a side, Ooh, yeah, yeah a side trail we don't need to go down but that it felt very much like you know I'm going to experience yeah. that that same kind of thing um, and just to wrap a bow on all of that I, I think that we need to be mindful of how we manage our pain, and we need to be mindful of how we manage our suffering, and how we manage the conversation about pain and suffering. Yeah, because I think those are um, are vital ways that that uh, if we manage them poorly, uh, we're only going to
0: produce more in the people around us and for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to say, it, and I think that's a good place to end. Because um, I got to go see Suicide Squad. <laughs> Do I, do I gotta really, <laughs> I don't think anybody has to, I'm yeah. merely going to, That's true. um, but yeah, so this was a, this was a good conversation. These are some very, very good movies. And if you've made it to this point, we've spoiled them for you, but we really haven't because we can't speak enough about those performances and a lot of that writing. Mm-hmm. And in the case of prisoners, especially just how beautiful it looks. Um, so these movies are definitely worth watching and you know they they will leave an imprint on you like these are not movies that fade from memory like they're yeah. and that's why i i you know mystic river uh is not merely a movie based on an airport novel just as prisoners is not merely pulp like they definitely are elevated right. through a number of artistic uh choices and thematic choices um to something that is really engaging and that will really stick with you and can inspire conversations like this and others. There's, again, there's a lot going on with prisoners, but anyway, so, uh, we will leave it there. Um, I don't yet know what we're doing next week. I think we're coming back to best of pictures, which would mean we'd be talking about West side story, but don't quote me on that. We might be doing something else. I'm not sure. Uh, in the meantime, keep an eye out. August, 20, 3rd. 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I thought 4th, but uh, August 23rd. That's a Tuesday. Uh, check morethanonelesson.com. Uh, it's hard to know if it'll be in iTunes by then. Mm. Uh, it's usually like once a show starts, it usually pops up within a, a week or two, gotcha. but never, not, never the first week. So just come to morethanonelesson.com. You'll be able to download the episode so you can still listen to it on your iPod and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so that'll be August 23rd. The Fear of God, mm-hmm. hosted by Reed and Nathan. <laughs> so, uh, and in the meantime, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can email me, Tyler at com. And I think that is it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.